Hey, Corey, it's good to meet you finally. Yes, good to meet you. And thanks, thanks for doing this. Uh, there's, there's so much I want to talk about, and I definitely want to make sure that that my folks are introduced to your background as the ultimate Tolkien guru. But uh, <laughs> um, I'm equally fascinated by uh, Signum University and and how that how that evolved and all of that, particularly in the context of of skyrocketing higher education costs. And you've talked about that a lot. So I got a lot I want to cover, but. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of, of background before you started the university? You were a college professor with an yes. obsession with Tolkien doing normal college professor stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I was so I was trained as a as a medievalist. That was my, you know, I, I medieval literature was my thing. And I was in a tenure track position when I started uh, the Tolkien stuff. Um, I began teaching some courses on Tolkien, which is very natural extension for uh, medievalists who are interested in fantasy. In fact, there are a lot of people who become medievalists because they're Tolkien fans as children. Uh, he's kind of a gateway drug to the Middle Ages in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, that was all very normal. Uh, the start of everything was my podcast, really, my Tolkien professor podcast, uh, which I began. And I first began that primarily because um, I was, uh, I was, you know, naturally I was a junior professor, so I was being pushed to publish, and I was increasingly frustrated with academic publishing because I was like, okay, so I'm going to do all this work and I'm going to publish things, which like only 50 people are ever going to be able to read because it's locked away and you know most no, nobody else can access it. So I wanted to do, um, I wanted to you know, put stuff out there. I'm like, I'm, I, I, I want to publish on Tolkien. There are like thousands of people out there who would be interested to, to, to talk about this. So I started a podcast instead, basically. Um, and that was kind of where things sort of got started. And that was what, 2009? That was pretty early on. Yeah, 2009. Yeah, yeah it was pretty early on. And yeah, it turned so out there were more than thousands. <laughs> there were more than thousands. I rather underestimated the number of people. And so, yeah, there were, in the end, uh, you know, more than 100,000 folks who were, ended up following me. And, and it, you know, it was a very enthusiastic uh, conversation, especially back then, as you say, it was pretty early on in the days of podcasting. So uh, there weren't very, you know, so many options for folks to be able to, uh, you know, kind of get this kind of academic content. Uh, you know, somebody who was really taking you know the work that they loved you know as a fan seriously academically in the way that i was and so it was something that was really fresh for a lot of people and and was very exciting and it was them initially um kind of pushing back uh, not pushing back but pushing forward really um and wanting more and more and wanting to be able to take courses and hey we should you know i would love to be able to take courses in this that led me to to start experimenting in the context of my podcast with online delivery and thinking about doing interactive courses, I experimented with my first ever um, online interactive course. Cause again, that was also early days of online education. Is it back, you know, go back to 2010, which is when I was starting to experiment with this. Um, you know, the online education world was basically just, um, you know, Phoenix and a, a few other, you know, very early adopters and uh, people, especially in the education world, were extremely distrustful of online education. Um, you know, it was uh, online education was a synonym back in those days for, you know, sort of uh, this sort of shyster product trying to pass itself off as education, but really just being some kind of online diploma mill was what everybody assumed about online education back in 2010. So um, the thing that was exciting to me was seeing how you could 
actually do, like through my experiments, I found you can really do live interactive teaching, which is every bit as good uh, as classroom teaching, you know, brick and mortar classroom teaching. And yet, of course, the accessibility of that, the, you know, I, I could immediately see the possibilities um, for what you could do if we if you really focused on that. And I began to sort of think, you know, gosh, if we actually created an institution which focused on this kind of thing, really, you know, intensely focusing on teaching so that we're having really great connections between teachers and students, but without the physical campus, that's a game changer. That's a complete game changer. Um, and the tuition thing is always something that was a real burden to me uh, as a professor. I'd gotten tenure by then, um, but um, but still it was, it was, um, it felt a it felt a moral burden. I mean, I'm uh, you know I am from very modest financial background myself, and uh, sitting there in my office talking to graduating seniors, English majors, you know, who are going off uh, into uh, you know not extremely uh, uh, luxurious job prospects uh, from graduation with like a hundred thousand dollars in debt uh, and feeling complicit in that system was hard you know so that really kind of motivated me to say look this could happen you know if we did this if we actually created an institution that rid itself of the physical campus and all of the costs attached to the physical campus. Um, and that was also, this was really the, right around the time, 2011, by this time, right around the time when this was really beginning to enter the national conversation. I mean, I remember the 2012 presidential campaign was the first presidential campaign where tuition and student debt was becoming a talking point uh, for presidential uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, candidates. And so everyone was you know, there in 2011 during the campaign being like, you know, what can we do about tuition costs? And I'm like, hey, uh, I've got an internet. I've got an idea. People are like, hey, we'll, let's do government subsidies and let's like wipe out debt. And I'm like, no, let's not in let's not maybe instead of enabling the corrupt system that is that is, you know, uh, brought this about. Let's change it. Let's just just let's just, uh, you know, think of a, a completely new model. So um, that's in, in the end, one of the main things that pushed me. Yeah, even going back to 2009 and Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, the, the and I I wrote about this at the time, a lot of the interviews with young people that were pissed off about the Wall Street bailouts was was really about this insane debt that they had incurred in, in yes. typical four year education. And their and, you know, the reaction was visceral, like, why aren't I getting a bailout? Because because I have this insurmountable debt that's going to ruin my life. And uh, and I definitely want to get into sort of the economics of, of the closed system. And you, and you referenced it earlier, the 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 uh, with the the academic publishing world, publisher parish, and and you've talked extensively about this on on some podcasts I've listened to. That um, there is almost a disincentive to be a good teacher, yes. um, because yes. all you focus on is this very rarefied. I, I don't know what it's like in literature. I'm an economist by training, and and when I I went through a brief period of wanting to be a professor in graduate school and. And this rarefied world in the economics world is is it's very much a cartel where it's difficult to get published in the right journals. And if you get published in the right journals, you have it's a very formulaic way of of simply manipulating equations that in no way adds to anybody's knowledge. And then nobody reads it. And if you want to read it, you got to spend an insane amount of money to have yes. access to. So it's this it's this closed 
academic system that is surely fed by all of the all of the money that's thrown at higher education and not just through through tuition inflation. Yeah, I mean it's it is it's it's exactly the closedness of that system that uh, I was really frustrated with because it's the problem in my mind. The biggest part of the problem here is I I you know I like I'm, I don't have any necessary criticism of the work that scholars are doing. A lot of scholars doing really interesting and really important work, and it's not that you know, the product that is being produced necessarily by the scholarly journals is a bad product. It's the way in which it is closed away. I mean, in this way, the whole, the iron, you know, the, the, the ivory tower thing is real, right? I mean, the general public can't get access. Academic publishing is very, very difficult. I mean, everything, whether it's monographs or whether it's journals, I mean, it is all designed for this, like, you know, feedback loop of, right, like the scholarly publishing things produce things so that scholarly libraries can buy them. And they know they're only going to sell like 500 copies of a book that they publish, but they can, they're and they're going to charge like $150 for that book because they know that the big scholarly libraries have the budget to afford it. Um, and they're all going to buy it because they buy everything that that press produces automatically, right? And so you've you've got this system of the small group of people publishing the things with a small group of people buy, and most people can't access any of it. And so therefore it has led to this uh, disregard. For, and there's not even a, a, an attempt or, or, or a desire in, a, in some sense to engage with the public, to actually engage with what one is tempted to call the real world, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 that that kind of disconnect, I think, is not healthy for scholarship, and and is uh, is and 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 it's senseless. Right now, it's senseless. I mean, I I can kind of understand how things got there. Um, you know, back when you had, I mean, there had to be resources available for the for print production and and everything, but now, we don't need that now. Um, I, you know, I, there I, have been all of these. I thought you were going to say before the invention of the printing press, when. <laughs> Everything has to be written out and scribe by scribes. Well, then that, it was even was harder. It's true, right? <laughs> right, exactly. That it was it, the printing press was a good step forward, but uh, but the internet has been as big a step forward as the printing press was. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, the publishing world has done almost nothing but attempt to inhibit that world and restrict, you know, to, to try to remake the internet world in the image of the old print world that they had control over in order to retain financial control over uh, their product. And again, and I just, I think that that is destructive, destructive to education, destructive to, um, you know, uh, just public awareness. These, these things should be, there should be better ways uh, to share these things. So absolutely. So th this makes you um, an enemy of sorts, a subversive, uh, undermining this uh, education industrial complex that's that's sort of feeding off of the cost of $150 textbooks, that kind of thing. And and go going back to your your other point about you know discovering that there was this this huge audience for something that would have been a very rarefied scholarly conversation. Um, it reminds me of someone I talk about a lot. I don't know if you get the reference, but there was this guy at the um, uh, early days of the internet, uh, John Perry Barlow. He was the lyricist for the Grateful Dead and sort of a um, technology 
utopist, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. And he talked about something, he, he uses a phrase that I still cling to in hopes that this is actually what the internet's going to do, the democratization of knowledge. Yes. Any, anybody yes. anywhere had access to the things that used to be closed in an ivory tower and, yes. and, and we could get into all the bad things about the internet. But to me, that's, that, that's the thing that, that you seem to be doing. It is. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, yes, that, and for me, the very first goal is access. Like that's, that's the, you know, to, that people should have access to the information, uh, that's there and that, that access should be enabled wherever possible. That doesn't mean, you know, I'm not like a completely, I'm not a radicalist who thinks like everything should be free. Cause like, you know, the people who do the work need, to make money too, right? So I understand that not everything can be made available for free. We don't make everything available for free, but um, uh, but nevertheless, things can be made available for a good deal, a good deal more affordably than they are, um, and you know, not with the primary goal of just kind of clutching the, you know, to to try to protect, you know, the the rights and everything, you know. So yes, there there are lots of ways in which we are hoping to develop a new paradigm. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I don't prefer myself to think about myself as a subversive. It's a little bit true, but <laughs> that's not how I prefer to think of. I think of myself as championing championing a new paradigm. Yes. <laughs> You're a liberator. <laughs> yeah, well, in some ways, yeah. I yeah. mean, because just if there are better ways that we can do things, if there are ways that we can do things, that we that we can make things more accessible to people, that we can be more inclusive in the conversation, why shouldn't we do that, right? And that that's that you know when it comes to when it comes to to publishing, I think that when it comes to education, I think that, and those were the those have been you know many of the things that have really um, uh, motivated me from the start. Yeah, and and you talk about this a lot, and I'd love for you to get into it, but the irony of the old closed system is that it appears to be destroying the humanities and, yes. and people's access to the humanities. T talk about that because you have quite an, an impressive analysis of it. Well, so the, the issue, what it, in my view, what it really comes back to ultimately is financial pressures on higher education. Um, and it has created this really sort of ironic situation. Because of course, as the perception, of course, tuition has been at a relatively intolerable level for a while, but it has more and more people have been talking about how intolerable it is. And the pressure has been increasing on universities uh, as more and more people are saying, are, you know, are, are objecting to student debt and are looking for alternatives or demanding alternatives. And the problem is that universities, they can't offer that. I mean, they're, it's, this is something that I think it's hard for people outside the business of higher education to understand because they look at the numbers, right? I mean, like they just take like yield state university, right? With 10,000 students. And they're like, well, they got 10,000 students, each of which student, right? Is paying like, Twenty to thirty thousand dollars. I said they were each paying twenty-five thousand dollars, right? And so you're just in your head multiplying ten thousand by twenty-five thousand per year, and you're like, man, these people are just rolling in money, right? There's just piles of money sitting around everywhere in universities, um, 
and like there are ways in which that's true. You go walk onto a university campus and you can see it's really expensive. There's a lot of money being spent. There's a lot of resources that are definitely available. Um, people always start talking about Harvard and how rich Harvard is. Harvard is a bad data point in every way. Like, don't talk about Harvard <laughs> because they are, I mean, they have more money than like first world countries. So like, that, it, that's ridiculous. Like they are, they're a crazy, crazy outlier uh, in the world of higher education. Um, but anyway, so you've got high, so, so so higher education has all this money, but but their bills are enormously high. Like the reality is that the majority of higher educational institutions, even though they're bringing in you know tens of millions of dollars a year in tuition, are barely breaking even. I mean, they are barely covering their expenses. It is, they cannot afford. There's no way people say like, you should cut tuition to like a quarter of what it currently is. Man, they cannot, they cannot, if they had a like a 5% reduction in tuition, they would be in financial panic. Some of them would go bankrupt. It's there. The, the, a lot of them are f living far closer to the bone than most people would think. Now that doesn't mean that they couldn't economize. It doesn't mean that all of their choices, their financial choices are wise choices, but um, but they're certainly not bankrolling massive quantities of tuition every year. So as the pressure has grown, the financial pressure has grown from the public against tuition rates. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the universities have had two choices. They, you know, one choice would have been to reduce tuition. They can't do that. That's not an option. So their only other option has been to increase the perceived value of their product, right? Let's try to make people more satisfied with the price, right? By showing them that it's worth it. And so um, the way that they've done this, and you can see this, go to any university website and you see it right away um, in all of their programs is to show you what jobs you qualify for, right? By paying this money to us, you get an you get a return on your investment, or you get an immediate return on your investment by the door, the career doors that are open to you and the greatly increased earning potential that you get as a consequence. And so uh, and this is a relatively recent development in higher education, but it's now almost universal. Everybody says, here are the jobs, like with concrete lists, here are the jobs that you are going to be qualified for if you get this degree or that degree or do this program or that program at our school. And all of these things obviously make it a worthwhile investment, don't you think? So this is where the humanities has really been squeezed into a corner because the humanities do not come across well on this particular metric. There are very few high paying jobs out there that, you know, hang out a shingle saying only art history majors need apply. Like that's, there just are very few that fit that category. So it's a real strain to try to justify the humanities in that way. And since the universities have poured all of their efforts, um, uh, they're 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 thoroughly invested now in this kind of you qualify for high paying jobs by paying this money for our tuition model. Um, then they it's harder and harder for them to justify the humanities and enrollment in the humanities has been going down and down because this is what all students and all parents are now asking and they are right to ask it. What are we going to get for all this money? It's a very sensible and important question for them to be asking. And the humanities do not seem to be able to deliver on that because it doesn't qualify you for a job. Now, the thing about the humanities, of course, there's a reason 
education always used to begin with you, like back in the Middle Ages with the seven liberal arts, right? And you, you started with the first three liberal arts were basically the humanities, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, right? Like everybody started with the foundation of the humanities and then, you know, moved on to whatever kind of professional application they needed. And there's a reason they used to do it that way, because although the humanities um, do not uniquely qualify you for very many high paying jobs, the humanities help you to build skills which are essentially important, especially for leadership positions in any job you might have. There is no job that you could possibly have that would not be enriched by being able to write more clearly, communicate more effectively, you know, have greater emotional intelligence. These are things that the humanities train you in really, really well um, and always have trained people in really, really well. Um, but that's all being kind of pushed aside in the humanities are increasing. I mean, you can go through and watch universities, um, you know, collapsing their humanities programs, cutting whole, you know, humanities departments and things because they're not getting enough enrollment because it doesn't pay off in that uh, return on investment uh, equation that they have now hardwired into their uh, into their marketing and even into their educational planning. Yeah, it's almost as if they become very expensive trade schools where there's uh there's an investment and it's not really education anymore. It's training and there's nothing yes. wrong with training, but um, it's, it's a, it's a sort of a cost benefit return on investment. And, and every year as tuition goes up and up and up, it, it, it just comes harder to understand which professions actually pay enough to justify it. Exactly. Exactly. No. And, that, and that's just it. I mean, most universities I think would uh, not enjoy being called very expensive trade schools, but that's how they're marketing themselves. I mean, yeah. that's they themselves have put themselves into that category. All of higher education now is all about proclaiming. I mean, even, uh, even the accreditors mandate this now. I mean, like you have to justify, in order to be accredited, you have to justify to your accreditors um, what career outcomes do your students get. And, and on the one hand, like I, I, I respect that in the sense of truth in advertising, right? So like, if you're saying you can get this job, yeah, you should be able to show that it actually does work, right? Um, so for that reason, it's good. But um, actually to say to, and I've had this conversation with accreditors within the last year, if you wanna go to accreditors and say, <clears throat> yeah, we don't do that actually, because we like, we don't, we don't at, at Signum, um, uh, we just kind of put not applicable in that part of the accreditation, you know, in our conversation with the accreditors, because we say explicitly, we're like, we're not trying to prepare you for a job. We're trying to help you learn. Like we want to enable education and you can do lots of things once you're, once you're educated, you know, once you do stuff, but we're not, we're not trying to say, do this in order to get a job. That's, that's, and that is one of the fundamental paradigms, which I think ultimately it, it, it has begun already, but I think if it continues, it's going to continue more and more just to erode the, the fundamental purpose of education of, you know, intellectually, enriching yourself as a person in order to equip you to enter the world and, and receive whatever additional training or whatever you may need to do, or even training at the same time. As you say, there's nothing wrong with training. Training is really important. Um, but there is in fact more to education than mere job training. And that is the thing that increasingly our entire educational system, especially higher education, uh, is beginning to lose sight of. 
So as an economist, I think about about the the radical radical price inflation in education, and I I googled it beforehand, and I I found a credible source that said since 1980, uh, the cost of a four-year university has increased by 1,200 percent, and that's higher than healthcare inflation, which is also insane. It's higher than housing inflation, which is also insane, and it's it's way above uh, the rate of inflation in that same period. And as an economist, I'm trying to think, okay, what's what's driving that? And and you've touched on one thing that I think is pretty essential. Um, I heard you recently criticize the idea of of free college tuition, and more recently, you know, uh, President Biden has talked about free community college, which is um, sort of halfway there, I guess. I don't know, but mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. what what do you, why are you against that? And do you think do you think that drives the the cost of of education? There are a couple of reasons I would be against that. The number one reason I would be against free education is that it's not free. It won't ever be free, right? I mean, someone's paying for it. So the question is, are is are the students going to be paying for it themselves or is tax money going to be paying for it? Um, and I have a deep distrust of education paid for by tax money because that means I don't have enormous confidence in the Federal Department of Education to run higher education. Um, To this point, uh, compared to K through 12 education, higher education has been um, comparatively free of control. We have, there's much less control uh, over higher education than there is just com- compared to K through 12. Um, there is still a good deal. I mean, the federal DOE still exerts uh, a good deal of pressure on higher education, especially through the accreditation process, <clears throat> because all of the accrediting organizations are themselves overseen by the DOE, and therefore they receive mandates from the DOE, which they then enforce. Uh, So there is definitely uh, influence that the federal DOE has. Um, But I just, like, at the end of the day, I fundamentally don't trust politicians and people appointed by politicians to make the best decisions for education. I, I just, that, See, it does not seem to me a controversial statement to say that that's not the best way to move forward with education. Um, uh, so that's the primary reason why I would not support. I mean, do I think it should be made more available? Yes, uh, I, I, but I, 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 you know, that's why my goal has been instead of saying, let's try to you know develop programs to make it free. I just want to make it affordable. Right. Yeah. I mean, my vision is for higher education that people can afford to like work your way through college, you know, get a job and get a get a part time job and pay your tuition as you go and merge debt free. You know, that's how we do things at Signum. Um, you know, we have our students, you know, leave Signum with as far as we know, no debt. Um uh, I mean, I can't absolutely say that no one has taken out a loan I don't know about in order to pay their signal tuition, but I'd be surprised because it's pretty low. Um, so I'm pretty sure that most of our students emerge without debt. And we are in the middle of developing an undergraduate program, which will operate on the same basis. It's kind of the, the contradiction of, of the increased federal involvement and federal funding in education, which starts around 1980. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they chose that, that date to 
to produce the number that I said, but um, there's increased involvement and there's increased subsidization, which makes it more difficult for a lot of students to get into these increasingly expensive universities. It's a, the irony of subsidies, maybe, that um, right. well, whatever their intentions were, they're doing the opposite. Exactly. And that's, of course, what we saw through the whole, that's the, in, in a sense, that's a cause, the cause of the student debt program in the first place, right? I mean, it started with a really good idea, a really good subsidy idea, the student loan, the federal student loan programs, right? Um, let us put higher education within the reach of everybody. Wow, that sounds like a really great goal. And it was a really great goal, right? So you got the student loan programs so that even the poorest students can have a financial way to get to university, fantastic. But what happened as a consequence? What happened as a consequence is that now the price ceiling got taken off of higher education, right? Before that, it's true that there were many who couldn't afford to go to university at all, and that's not a good thing, right? But when the universities were, were selling a product to consumers who had to pay for it themselves, right? Or get their own private loans or whatever, um, there was a limit to what they could charge because if they, they couldn't charge more than the market could bear. But now that there was virtually unlimited, you know, or functionally <laughs> unlimited um, student loan money available to anybody for asking, um, the ceiling was taken off of what they could charge because now, now, now it doesn't matter, right? Whatever we charge, they can afford to pay it because anyone could afford to pay it because they can all get these loans. And so, and that's when you see tuition crisis beginning to go up and up and up. Um, another reason I think for the 1980 thing, in the 80s there was, um, uh, there was a, a study done uh, to try to discover what was the primary determining factor that made students choose which college they go to. You know, colleges that which were competing for students wanted to know. So so they did this study um, of what was the number one factor. And the overwhelming convin convincing result to on what basis primarily do students choose uh, their uh, their college was curb appeal. That was that was the answer. And so that began an arms race among all of the schools who had the resources. Let's whoever can have the swankiest campus and the nicest gym uh, and the fanciest sports facilities, um, because even to students who have no interest in sports, it still says like, wow, I'm going to this really prestigious school. Look, look at all the stuff, right? Um, and so the cost of the cost to schools of their campuses, their investment in their physical plant went through the roof in the 80s and 90s. And like, and as I said, it's arms race. Like you could not afford to fall behind. If you were still putting out there the kinds of campuses that students were attending in the 60s, say, you could not compete in today's market. There's no way, right? So uh, you've got to increase. And that's why higher education is in this bind that I was describing before. Now their tuition is unreasonably high. And yet they cannot afford to reduce it even a little bit below the unreasonable level that it's at because they're barely making ends meet. They're being barely able to pay their bills on their tremendously expensive campuses. And that's why my solution, you know, my uh, uh, my 
uh, answer at the beginning back in 2011 when I started up Signum was, hey, you know what? We ditched the campus. Let's, let's just not have a campus. So Signum has, we have no physical plant of any kind. We're a completely, you know, everybody, all of our staff and our faculty work from home and all of our classes are online. All of our classes have fully synchronous components. That is like, you know, students and, and teachers interacting together in a traditional classroom environment, except online. Right. And as a result, our overhead is <laughs> way, way less. And that, I mean, it's at the end of the day, from an economic standpoint, it's really not complicated, right? Reduce cost, reduce your overhead, reduce your prices. It's not that hard. So, so no curb appeal at all for you guys, right? No curb appeal at all. That's it. That's it. But, yeah, the, but, our, instead, it's tuition appeal. It's like yeah. a, you know, a, a price tag appeal is basically what we're going for. You know, it kind of reminds me in, in reverse, or maybe not in reverse, uh, you know, before the deregulation of the airline industry, uh, airlines were... A, a quite lavish experience and you can you can watch the old movies and you know yes. they're, drinking, they're drinking champagne eating caviar <laughs> but of course you and i couldn't have afford afforded to fly anywhere at any time so we would take a bus and and with de deregulation there was price competition and now we all complain that that there are no services but we can also fly wherever we want whenever we want so again it's democratized the ability to travel in a way that that I feel like you're democratizing um, higher education. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I was. Uh, my wife and I just watched The Shining for Halloween, and we were re reflecting on that in the uh, the the airplane scene with these huge seats they were sitting in and everything. Yeah. Exactly. But no, that's that's precisely the point. I mean, it is. I think that this is a model, and you know, we've been working on building a model for you know, 21st century higher education. You know, I do not think that the online model that we have is just this like strange little like fringe, you know, boutique model. Online education has become, you know, since we started, higher education has become mainstream. Um, and, but it's still frustrating to me because of course it's still being done. The reason it became, it kind of became mainstream for disreputable reasons. Yeah. Um, mainstream higher education, uh, did an about face. Like it was completely anti online education. I remember that very well from when I started. Um, there was huge suspicion heaped upon anything done online. And then it did an absolute pivot and started embracing it. And now every single major university does online stuff. Um, even before the pandemic, that was true. <clears throat> but again, it was for disreputable reasons because they discovered hey, um, we can offer the same courses online. Um, but we don't even have to teach, keep, keep, keep paying the faculty, right? We can just get a faculty member to, to can a course once and we can keep offering it and we can keep charging the same amount, right? And some students are paying not only the same amount for their online courses as for their brick and mortar co uh, courses at school, um, but sometimes more. Like I was talking to these students at this one school, they're like, no, yeah, we have to pay an extra like convenience fee to take an online course. And I'm like, oh wow. man, that is rich. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so so basically uh, this was a kind of a desperation move by higher education to bolster their margins because they were struggling. They were really struggling. Um, I mean, uh, people in higher education have not liked to admit that their model was headed towards a financial cliff prior to the pandemic, right? And yeah. now everyone in higher education is like, 
trying to pretend the pandemic didn't happen and let's get back to normal, forgetting that normal was not in a good place prior to yeah. the pandemic, financially speaking, right? Um, but anyway, it's um, so the 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 shift um, that we're you know looking to do is to say you know no, we're not just gonna we don't just want to do that we don't want to just kind of um, um, you know subordinate online education to our model to to you know to to have it. Uh, be underpinning the finances of you know the uh, the, the the overpriced uh, original model, but to say, look, this is online education. It's not necessarily for everyone. I don't think brick and mortar schools are ever going to go away. There will always be some. I mean, certainly, like how's Harvard going to go away? I mean, like again, they've got more money than God, but um, uh, but the there will always be brick and mortar schools, and that's fine. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with brick and mortar schools. Um, but um, but I think that online education has really been um, it's been a kind of a perverse effect because the embracing of online education by higher education has made it into a mainstream thing. You know, now uh, again, I remember very distinctly in 2011 when I first began Signum talking about <clears throat> online education and the question always whether it was in people's mouths or just in their eyes, right? When I would tell them about it was, is that legit? Is that like a real thing, right? That was everybody's question. Within three years of starting that, um, almost everybody I talked to about it who asked me what I did and you know I was talking about this stuff had taken an online class somewhere, like had, had, had experienced it. Um, but the problem is they've experienced this, the kind of, uh, subordinated version of it, you know, this uh, kind of automated version of it that's designed to maximize. Well, that, yeah, that's what I want to ask you, because I, I think a lot of people, um, parents going through lockdowns, K through 12, mm -hmm. online learning, first of all, it's one size fits all. Yes. And, but in the same thing with college, where people are still paying their inflated tuition prices, but they're yes. getting this recording. And that's not real online education. That's, that's, no. That's a form of torture in my mind. Um, <laughs> but you, you guys don't do it that way, right? But you're surely dealing with this this new reputational problem um, of the last uh, year and a half where online education is a, is a caricature of what you're talking about. It is. It's true. I mean, for us, in the end, I think the pandemic, the increase, the experience that people have had has still been a net gain for us in one sense. And that is, people went from not knowing what online to thinking they knew what online education was, but it wasn't really what we do, right? So I'd be like, oh, so we do online courses, and they're like, oh yes, I've I've done that before, and I'm like, actually, I bet you haven't, right? Not 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 really, not the way that we do it. Um, and again, there's no like magic, there's no like trade secret about how we do it. It's like really simple. All you have to do is be committed to maximizing contact between teachers and students, like the, and students with each other. Like that's it. If you're just if you're committed to that idea, and that's what you, which again sounds simple, but most schools are not because the whole point of online education uh, in, you know, this sort of standard mainstream model to this point has been maximum flexibility. So like, you know, you can do the courses anytime you want, recorded courses, you know, on your own schedule anytime you want. Um, well, that's the marketing point. But of course, the real point is 
that the universities can can it and they don't have to keep paying faculty for it, right? Um, whereas again, our approach is we want to maximize the amount of like people hours that we're spending doing the education. We want to maximize that content. And that that's it. That's the only magical difference between our online education and other online education is that commitment to um, maximizing community interactions, teachers and students, advisors and students, students with each other. We want to maximize that online community. And that's what makes our online education special. But yeah, so on the one hand, the pandemic has been really hard for that uh, because now people have had all these negative experiences uh, with uh, people. And I have nothing but sympathy for the teachers, college and K through 12, who were thrust by, I think that administrators in general, school administrators, <clears throat> Um, did a horrible job during the pandemic. They're the ones that I blame for what happened to education during the pandemic um, because they were not, they did not sufficiently support uh, the most administrators idea of what it meant to support teachers was to give them tech training, right? Like here's how you use the software. And that is not what teachers needed, right? But like with that tech training, then the administrators expected them to just basically do what you've been doing, except now, you know, online. And it, it's, that's not how online education works. Like it, it's not the same kind of conversation. Um, so anyway, um, you've, you've got to kind of, you've, you've got to sort of think it through. Um, so a lot of people did have negative experiences with that, but um, for us so far, the thing that has really counterbalanced that, um, the idea of doing meaningful, synchronous, you know, meetings, discussions, uh, you know, social interactions online two years ago was alien to 90% of folks. Um, uh, the idea that a an audio video connection could be used in any way, you know, as a, a sort of a stand in for an in person meeting or an in person um, uh, interaction, an, an in person conference, uh, something like that was a, you know, nobody would have accepted that if you'd gone three years ago and said to any one of the like major professional or scholarly conferences or something like that, hey, why don't you do it all over Zoom instead? Um, they would have thought you were completely insane, right? Now, that's like, now it's a thing. Everybody understands it. Everybody, not everybody loves it, right? But everybody has had some experience enough to know the same kind of experience I had in 2010 when I was experimenting with my podcast. And I went into it dubiously, honestly. I did not expect, um, I expected that the uh, the kind of synchronous classroom environment that we uh, had established in my first experimental go through, I expected it would do fine in enabling like me to transmit stuff, right? I expected that I could like, I, I could probably lecture that way, right? But what I was very skeptical about was that the social element would click, would happen, you know, that, that, that there would be like any classroom chemistry, um, uh, in that class. And I was blown away when I actually experienced it. I was blown away um, by how that was. Yes, you know, like your Zoom call with, you know, your parents and your friends during the pandemic is not the same as being able, you know, to go to lunch with them. But it's also 
a very great deal better than nothing. It's also, you know, um, everyone I think has found that these kinds of online interactions have done a better job than they might have expected at enabling them to stay in touch with people, to connect with people in different situations. Um, and so there's some experience of that now. I mean, goodness, even just trying to operate as a distributed organization where everybody was working from home was like trying to rein, you know, everyone was like, we, yeah, you had to reinvent the wheel to do that because nobody was was open to that. I very open to that idea either. Again, not that we were unique in that, but it was certainly very far from mainstream two years ago. Um, so the fact that everyone is now accustomed to operating in this way, everyone's accustomed to uh, to this. Um, it has uh, laid the foundation. Uh, for many, even to overcome the negative experiences they had uh, in an educational environment and be willing to uh, to at least like be imaginatively open to the concept. You know, if this were done well, it actually could work. And so in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, it still has been it still has really made things a little easier for us. Yeah. One of the like uh, when you when you dig into the data, looking at the inflated uh, price of of school and perhaps the decline in the quality of education, you see that the administrative class is is a growing percentage of the budget. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say in a if if this was a Tolkien metaphor, maybe the education administrators are are Sauron or something. Right, uh, more like Saruman, I think, a mind yeah. of metal and wheels. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, that has been. Um, and by the way, this is one of, I was talking about how the federal DOE has had a kind of, you know, uh, from like not a duck, a top down decree, you shall do this and these shall be your educational standards, but up through the accrediting bodies that has been, I believe that the administrative, the growth of the administrative class is one of the things that we see as a consequence of that. Um, I'm not saying I blame the government, but I kind of blame the government because uh, what the accreditor, what, what the accreditation standards, again, accreditation standards, which must themselves conform with the standards established by the federal DOE. One of the things that they, that they do is they, they mandate it's not about like what happens in the classroom. It's about how you are like watchdogging what happens in the classroom. And so uh, I, it has been a continual effort as we have, um, you know, interacted with the accreditation process. And Signum is not yet accredited. We are in the accreditation process right now. Um, so I am I am like right in the midst of uh, of all of this stuff. And um, it is. Uh, you know, the, 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 our primary goal is to, you know, to, 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 to achieve accreditation, but to maintain our integrity and not to compromise, you know, our mission and our vision and what we're trying to do. And this has been one place where it's challenging, honestly, because there are lots of places where essentially like entire branches of administrators who do nothing but review the work of other administrators are basically required <clears throat> by the standards. And we've had to try to think of sort of creative ways to say, okay, well, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not doing that. You know, we think we're, we're gonna try to meet these standards in other ways. Um, but it is, um, 
you know, that and so there, I, I, there are two things I would say that kind of have led to the growth of the administrative class uh, in my experience. One is that. One is, again, it's in order to do all the things that the accreditors say you have to do, it requires a vast team of administrators, uh, not only to report on it, but, you know, not only to do it first, but then to report on it afterwards. Um, but then in addition, you have the the trend which has been clear in academia over the last 20 years, um, the increasing corporatization, not, okay, not actually corporatization, but the self-conscious modeling of their administrative structure on a kind of pseudo corporate model, right? It's not a real corporate model, right? But it's a, like the, when, um, you know, provosts and bursars got re replaced by vice president of financial development, right? At a, you know, like when, when vice presidents started multiplying at universities around the country um, and everybody started structuring their administrations on things that sounded really officially corporate. Um, again, I, I, I think it's, um, I believe that anybody who's actually familiar with corporate <laughs> structure in the corporate world would find the academic version of, you know, the pseudo academic, uh, the, the pseudo corporate structure within academia a little bit comical in some ways. Um, but nevertheless, it's been that it's been that thing like we're, you know, instead of having again, instead of having a provost, we have a chief academic officer. Right. And we had just like we have our chief financial officer and uh, and everything else. Um, and that also has led to the kind of perceived elevation instead of like your dean being like, so you've got a member of the faculty, right, who becomes dean and stuff and like does a term as dean for a while and then goes back into the faculty and is replaced by somebody else. That's the old model, right, from back in the old days. Now, like, oh man, deaning, like that's a whole profession, right? That's a whole, it's a, in fact, there are a whole, uh, higher education degrees. Uh, if you want to get a job as a dean, that you have to get, that you have to get that higher education training to do. You know, um, and uh, and by the way, it's one of the things also that the accreditors apply some pressure for is like, do you have people who have these these degree qualifications in order to be deans? You know, on your yeah, it totally uh, it, it's it, all... it politicizes the the process because yes. they they become politicians in a sense who are responding to incentives and, and dealing them with them. Um, yes. we're, we're going to run out of time at some point, but I definitely want to talk a little bit about Tolkien. Otherwise I've done sure. a horrible job talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my gateway is probably very different from yours, but, but my gateway to Tolkien was Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin and, sure. and, later, and later Peter Jackson. How, how did you get into this stuff? Sure. By the way, I think uh, I won't say Tolkien was my gateway into Led Zeppelin, uh, but uh, I certainly had read Tolkien long before I listened to Zeppelin. But I became a Zeppelin fan in high school uh, when I listened to those songs and realized that Robert Plant was a Tolkien fan. And I'm like, these guys are cool. Right. So I've been a Zeppelin fan ever since. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so Tolkien, I, I mean, I've been reading Tolkien since I was a kid. Um, it was, a, you know, a thing I discovered when I was eight and that I've really loved. I mean, I think that Tolkien is. Um, I, look, the Lord of the Rings is probably the most influential literary work of the 20th century. I mean, it's uh, uh, there's nothing that will make uh, a 20th century specialist uh, in an English department angrier or faster than somebody saying that publicly. Um, and uh, all of the uh, James Joyce scholars out there, you know, uh, 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 scream a scream of rage when you say it. 
but it's unquestionably true. The Lord of the Rings is the most influential literary work of the 20th century. And there's a reason for that. You know, it has, you know, Tolkien really, um, really tapped into something and we can see it. I mean, you can see it, especially like, look at the, the the trend towards the 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 imaginative and fantastic in films uh over over the last you know 20 30 years right um i remember saying something a while like 20 years ago something like you know why why are the you know the great old traditional myths you know like the fall of troy and uh you know and that like why 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 aren't there any movies made about those and i remember people like sort of smiling at me and being like Oh, how quaint an idea that is, right? And now, of course, of course, like all of these things are happening, right? Um, and a, a lot of this is just, it, it's part of like the door that Tolkien opened. You know, when Tolkien published The Lord of the Rings, nobody had any idea what to do with it because everybody knew, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, everybody knew that fantasy literature is only for children, right? I mean, that's, that, that's just a kid's thing. Um, and here was The Lord of the Rings, um, there were some adults who still read fantasy books, but they knew they were reading kids' books, right? I mean, you have to have a certain confidence to like read, you know, self-confidence to read kids' books and not be embarrassed about it. Um, but here was The Lord of the Rings, manifestly a book written for grown-ups, like a book unsuitable for young children, just like they, it's hard for them to read, right? It's clearly written for adults and yet unashamedly a fantasy story. Um, and that was, that was a turning point in, you know, the modern imagination, which I think has been a really, uh, a really important, uh, in my opinion, a really wholesome one, actually. So we have uh, uh, Logan Albright, who is one of the producers here at Free the People, and he's a big fan of your, of your podcast. Um, he has found a Tolkien quote for you that, that we would love for you to analyze. And, and by the way, if you didn't know this, we have a libertarian bent here. We don't apologize for that, but um, here's what he said. My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning the abolish, uh, abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs. <laughs> yes, what, that was that, that was the, that was the, what do you, what so do you think the, about the, that? The whiskered men with bombs thing, like that's when you said anarchist in the, I mean, he wrote that, that letter dates from, it's from one of his letters, which dates from, I think the thirties. Um, so when, like when in the 1930s, you said an anarchist, everybody imagined a, a guy with a mustache and a, you know, throwing bombs uh, right. at things like that was the, that was the classic model. Right. And so he said like, no, 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 I'm not an anarchist in the sense of, I want to chuck bombs at things. Right. Um, I'm an anarchist in the sense that I think people should be left alone to govern their own affairs. Um, and within the world of the Lord of the Rings, the Shire is pretty much his like anarchical ideal, um, where there is almost no government of any kind. I mean, he explicitly says they had no government, they have no police. Um, that's not how the Shire works. Like everybody takes care of their own business. If there's like, enforcement of rules that has to happen. It happens within families, primarily. Um, there is a mayor, right? There is an elected official, but all he does is preside at feasts. Like he doesn't actually have any real authority. Um, and that is very, that was very much uh, Tolkien's vision. Now, of course, ironically, uh, the other form of government that he 
uh, celebrates is hereditary monarchy. Um, so it's like all or nothing uh, in Tolkien's world as far as government is concerned. Um, but um, but there again, he's mostly kind of focused on working out like the mythic ideal, like what does it mean for there to be a good king? Like what does a good king look like? And of course, one of the conclusion, if one were to want to apply uh, his uh, study of kingship um, in uh, the real world, I, I think one could certainly not fail to um, uh, be struck by how little uh, uh, modern political leaders fail to live up to the models that he puts forward uh, for, you know, if you want to wield executive power, this is how it should work. And it's not how it works. One of the things, I think it was actually in that same letter as, the, as that quote that you just mentioned, um, uh, Tolkien says, uh, quoting a, quoting a, a Catholic Latin uh, saying, um, one of the Unfortunately, this was sort of a ritual formula, which totally undermines its actual usefulness. But um, part of the formula of becoming consecrated as a bishop um, was the candidate would have to say, Noli Episcopari, I do not want to be a bishop, right? Um, like if you sought power, you were disqualified, right? That was that was part of the ideal. And again, it becomes formalized. And so the person who wants power knows they have to say they don't want power in order to get it. Um, but anyway, um, he alluded to that in that same letter. And he said, I think for leaders, like for people like in government positions, the um, uh, the 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 primary requirement uh, as of old should be noli episcopari. That is the only people that you can trust as leaders, as political leaders, are the people who don't want political power, the people who don't want um, to be in charge. Um, and this is, I often joke about that. This is one thing that I do personally do agree with Tolkien about. Um, I often tell people the one thing um, I, I don't, I, I never really, um, support anybody who runs for president primarily because they obviously want to be president. Um, like that's, you know, the, the, it's the downside, right? If you're, if you're, if, if you're investing everything you have in order to try to get elected president, well, that's uh, that's a, that's a pretty big red mark. It would certainly, it, it would have been a red mark in Tolkien's book. And I, I, I personally do kind of agree with him on that. Um, so. But if, uh, but if, but if Frodo, if Frodo ran for president, you could trust him with the precious, right? Well, see, that was exactly like the uh, the Tolkien uh, strongly objected to the idea of the Lord of the Rings being a political allegory, right? That is what he was fighting against. You'll often hear people quote that, like how he say, oh, it's not an allegory, it's not an allegory, because he didn't want people to boil it down to just an allegory, right? However, it is very applicable <laughs> to the political world. And one of the things that you see is the reason Frodo is the ring bearer is that the, the ring of power um, is most dangerous against people who have power, people who have abilities. Like if you if you take somebody who is really smart and really capable and has a strong will and strong charisma and you put them in a position of power, like that's where things can get really dangerous, right? Um, and so 
Frodo is the perfect ring bearer because he doesn't want to do it and he, because he's not qualified and because he doesn't have any power of his own. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, yeah, you, um, you can only entrust the ring if you want to have the ring, even if you want to carry the ring, if you think you can handle it, then that's always in the book, a really, really, really bad sign. Um, and so, yeah, in a lot of ways it does, again, although it was not written in any way as an allegory, it is applicable as Tolkien said, it should be applied. Um, it is a, certainly applicable, I think, in a lot of ways to the political arena like this. Um, sometimes some folks have asked me if I've ever thought about running for office. And I always say, well, if I ever ran for office, my platform would be, um, if you vote for me, vote for me because I, if I elected, I'll take my responsibility seriously, but I really don't want to do this. And I have no interest in this at all. <laughs> but I don't think I'd be likely to win with that platform. I don't know. We're we're getting close where where I think uh, <laughs> someone that is is really turned off by power might actually be attractive to people. I hope I always hope that's true, but but we'll see. Hey, we've yeah. we've we've run out of time, but I definitely want you to give folks an idea of where they can find your your podcasts and more about the university and. You're sure. working on about a thousand projects. So, so it's true. It's true. Yeah. Know. So um, my podcast stuff, actually, the easiest place to find everything in one spot is on our YouTube channel. If you go to Signum University, so S-I-G-N-U-M University, Signum University's YouTube channel, you can find playlists of all of my broadcasts and all the, the stuff that we do there. Um, for more information on Signum's programs, you can go to signumuniversity.org uh, and find information about our graduate program. Our, we have a professional development program program to train people in humanities skills. We have uh, kids programs, extracurricular programs, uh, continuing education. We do a whole bunch of different things, all of it focused on the humanities, specializing in language and literature right now. Cool. And, and let's, uh, if you're up for it, let's do an entire show on the political economy of the Shire, because I've, <laughs> I've never quite thought about it this way, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe Tolkien and Hayek might have met at some point. I don't know. Uh, that that would be great. It would be fun. Uh, yeah, economics is one of the things that, like, of all of his like world building elements, I think Tolkien thought less about economics than he thought about many other things. And yet, there are a lot of things that work really interestingly. Uh, it would be fun. We should do it. Cool, Corey. It's been awesome. Very Thanks. good. Thank you very much. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.